Coming up on today's show, it is National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada, and this year it's different than it has been in the past. What's going on with those two scientists that were fined from the Winnipeg lab? And have you ever heard of Canadian-Ukrainian internment camps? We've talked about Japanese internment camps before. We've talked about the residential schools. Ukrainians had their own thing to deal with during World War I. We'll get all the details. So as I said, this is the 25th National Indigenous Peoples Day in our country. Uh, and it's a very different National Indigenous Peoples Day in our country. I think that it has been before for obvious reasons. Things have changed. The discussion nationally has changed. Um, it takes on different meaning. It takes on added importance. So to find out a bit about, because I think the key here for me anyway is education. It's, it's learning what I haven't learned. And, you know, these giant, giant blind spots in Canadian history that have been exposed to me. Um, how can we work through that and how can we learn? And I think today is a really good opportunity to talk about the different ways around the country, around the province, around your city, where you can do that. Um, so we're going to chat now with Charlene Bearhead. Um, Charlene's been on the show before. She is the Director of Reconciliation for the Royal Canadian Geographical Society and the first education lead for the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, an education coordinator for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, Charlene, thanks for joining us on the show once again. I appreciate your time. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You know, I think for a lot of Canadians, uh, we've it was a real eye-opener. Um, not for all Canadians, obviously. A lot of people knew about this for a very long time. But for a lot of people, it was really sort of um, a, a rude awakening to the reality of our country's history. Um, and today, when we're talking about National Indigenous Peoples Day, um, is education a, a focus, do you think, or do I have that wrong? Is that something that people can be looking to as an important thing to do on this important day? Absolutely. I think you've nailed it. But I think we also need to think about how do we define education. So I, I think that formal education, K-12 to education, yep. post-secondary, I mean, K-12 to education, the one common experience we have in this country is that we all have to go to school. And so that's the place that we can really learn. But we also know, and as you mentioned today, as, as you mentioned the last time I was on the show, you know, you, me, Many other Canadians did not have the benefit of this education when we went to school. And so education really is so much broader right now when it, when it comes to, you know, learning about Indigenous people and learning from and with. And I think that's something that's really, really key mm-hmm. is that people need to learn, whether it's in schools, in community, at work, in your, in your home, we need to learn from and with Indigenous people. It's not that, you know, this is like a lost civilization and you've got to research and, you know, find out from the archives. Indigenous people, we, we live with, near, around yeah. Indigenous people all the time. And so it's actually disrespectful to just be learning about Indigenous people when the, the experts in their own lived experience are right here. And that's, and so yeah, absolutely. Education is the key. It's the only way we're going to change the narrative in this country. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, you make such a really good point that, you know, learning with the, these communities mm-hmm. that surround us and being part of that and sharing that experience will go so far. How do we do that? Today's National Indigenous Peoples Day. How can we take that step today to get started on that road? Well, it's so interesting because people ask a lot. They'll say, okay, I get it. I need to, you know, I need to learn from Indigenous people. I need to have those relationships. So how does that start? And, and, you know, I've actually had people say, where do I find an Indigenous person? I can be a little sarcastic sometimes. Sometimes I say, stop wherever you're standing and turn really slowly and look. And there they are. But I think that sometimes people, 
you know, sometimes people think, well, non-Indigenous people aren't interested or they don't care. And, and fair enough, there's lots that don't. But I believe that the majority of people are just really afraid that they're going to do something disrespectful right. or, they're, you know, do something wrong. So I have to say that from my experience, really, if we do things in a good way, if we do things with integrity, and just say that, like, as a... You know, as there's an Indigenous person in your workplace or in the community, on your kid's hockey team, you know, parents of your, you know, that are on your kid's ball team, whatever the case might be, get to know people and just start out with that humility and just say, you know what, I actually don't even know how I should approach things. I don't know what kind of protocols I should follow to talk to elders or, or community members, but I want to learn and I want to do it with integrity and so teach me yeah talk to me you know and i think that goes a long way because humility is not something that government that the crown originally that you know large industry um, other organizations that have any kind of connection uh, to indigenous communities humility has been a thing that's been lacking and when we humble ourselves and we're respectful and we have integrity that's how relationships start, but isn't that how relationships work with anyone? Of course, right, yeah. And it may be clunky at the beginning, uh, but I think there needs to be an understanding that you're doing this to make things better, and it, it may be awkward at the beginning. Because like you say, a lot of us, you know, you don't want to offend. and, and, and you don't mm-hmm. wanna, A lot of times you don't even want to draw attention to the fact that you're trying to find out more. So just dive in, right? Just dive in and start the conversation. Yeah, and just do it in, as I said, in like, you know, a really respectful way yeah. and, and ask for that guidance and you'll get it. You know, and the reality is you may come across people that don't want to talk to you and aren't very keen to do that because of their own experience with non-Indigenous people. But that's not a reason to give up, and that's not a reason to not try to, you know, continue to pursue those respectful relationships because the worst thing that can happen is that we do nothing at all, and we already know where that gets us because that's where we are right now. Um, just this text from a listener, and, um, you know, there's a, a couple. Uh, please ask your guest if there will ever be a point where Canadians have learned enough, recognized enough, and atoned enough. And I don't think this is about atoning. I think this is, you know, when we talk about why it's so important to learn about this, Charlene, it's because that's the first step to understanding and to recognizing and to improving the situation, isn't it? I mean, sort of, because when we talk about the residential schools, you can learn about what happened in the residential schools, but you also need to learn about what that kind of generational trauma did and what it's still doing to this day. So education is the key here. Well, and and the other reality that, you know, sort of comes to light from the, the context of that text from your listener is that it's not only the traumas and absolutely the, the trauma, the all of the impacts of colonization, absolutely we need to learn about that. But that's not Indigenous people's history and problem. That's ours. Yeah. We did that. We need to look at that. And so, you know, I mean, do you not teach your kids when they're small? Take responsibility for your actions and do better. It's not okay. And so we as adults need to do that, and we as non-Indigenous Canadians need to do that. But the other reality is there's so much more to it, and the things that we need to learn from Indigenous people are all of the practices, the knowledge that came from, you know, the science. If it weren't where we live in Alberta, had we early on, instead of trying to erase that knowledge and, and, you know, history and science and those practices and protocols of environmental sustainability, all of, you know, environmental preservation, all of those things that kept 
all things that are living on this land in balance for thousands of years. Had we not used residential schools to interfere with the transmission of that knowledge, not only from one generation to another, but from Indigenous to non-Indigenous people, we would be in a lot better situation overall in this country than we are now. One thing I want to ask you... Sorry, Charlie, uh, and I, I don't know what your perspective is on this, but there's a lot of people saying, well, what do you want me to do? I wasn't even alive when this happened, and on and on. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I think, I think okay, fine. That you, you weren't directly involved in the residential schools, but we all live in Canada now. We all live here together now. And getting an understanding of that, in order to improve the situation for all of us, you need to have that understanding. Why is it so important to put that building block in place if we genuinely want to make things better for all of us? Well, to start with... Yeah, maybe you weren't alive. And actually, the reality is, if you were not alive when this happened, you would have to be under 30. Because we know the last right, residential yeah, school closed, right? right, in 1996. Yeah. So I don't know if my math is right, but it's close. Somewhere around um, Right? But the other thing is that whether or not you were alive, we all benefit from this every single day. If you are non-Indigenous, you benefit from what happened. I benefit from what happens. And one of the things that I find um, interesting is often when I'm doing, you know, teacher professional development or, you know, professional development for school board trustees or whatever, and I talk about our treaty rights, and we live, I live in Treaty 6, we have Treaty 6, 7, 8, 4, and 10 in this province, and so most of us live in either Treaty 6, 7, or 8, but when I talk about treaty rights, that we all have treaty rights, and people that are non-Indigenous just look baffled. And, and I remind people, well, first of all, you have to have two sides to have a treaty, otherwise there's no treaty because it's an agreement. So that means we have treaty rights, but we are so, our treaty rights are so well intact as non-Indigenous people that we don't even have to know we have them. They just magically happen for us. Where First Nation people have to fight that fight every day. And the treaties still have not been honored. And so one of the things I would really recommend, if people don't know what to do, I need to know what to do right now, learn about your treaty rights. Read the treaty. Find out about the treaty in the territory where you live. And recognize that you have treaty rights that are intact every day and what's our treaty responsibility to others. Excellent. Charlene, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Some great information today. Awesome. Thanks, Shay. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That is Charlene Bearhead, who has done a tremendous amount of work around education, uh, around residential schools, and the relationship between Canada and its Indigenous peoples. And of course, today is National Indigenous Peoples Day. You've probably seen this story. It was uh, about two years ago now, almost two years ago, that two Chinese scientists were fired and escorted out of Winnipeg's National Microbiology Lab. Uh, The Public Health Agency of Canada cited possible breaches in security protocols as the reason for this action they took. And those firings have sparked months of debate and parliamentary squabbling that all culminated in the Conservative Party withdrawing all of their members from a National Security Committee last week, saying that the government is using that committee to cover up whatever incident led to those firings. So let's get a bit of background on what happened and uh, what we know about it and, you know, where we're going to go from here. Joining us now, we have uh, Christian Luprecht. Uh, Christian is 
a class of 1965 profit route at the Royal Military College and a professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at Queen's University. Uh, Christian, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Good morning. Okay, so let's go back to the beginning here. These two scientists, married couple, working at the Winnipeg Lab, were fired for security breaches. What do we know about exactly what happened and why they were escorted out of that facility? Well, so the presumption had been that this was due to uh, samples that they had dispatched to China on which, depending on sort of what story you believed, it was either they hadn't done the paperwork properly, they hadn't done export control licenses properly, or they hadn't filed proper intellectual property um, paperwork and had thus given that away. But the ministers come out and clearly said that none of those were reasons for their dismissal from the lab, and I had long suspected and speculated publicly. Uh, that this was an espionage operation. And so, yes, they sent samples, but now it's sort of a broad, a, a, and, and that might have been a serious violation, but the broader concern is that uh, uh, they essentially wanted to get domain awareness of what the Canadian lab is capable of, what we're working on, um, and what we're working on with our allies. And uh, biosecurity is, um, is technology that's effectively what we call dual-use technology that can readily be weaponized um, by, uh, by Chinese partners. And so this is why the collaboration with um, uh, Chinese military and uh, security entities is so concerning, um, disconcerting because uh, we know that China um, has uh, attempts underway to run a fairly significant uh, uh, bioweapons program. And so we appear to have enabled um, uh, some of those developments. Great. Uh, now, in the meantime, there's been a scramble to try and get some clarity around exactly, because like you say, uh, depending on what story you've read or who you've talked to, you're getting different versions about exactly what happened. Um, that's a major issue, isn't it? The fact that we're two years out from this and we still don't know exactly what happened. I mean, why do we not? Why is the government not being forthcoming with that? Well, this is the world of espionage, right? So there's any number of uh, things that might be going on in the background here. So one is that, of course, they might have been um, under surveillance for quite some time, uh, which is often what you do with spies. You just want to watch who are they talking to, what are they, what sort of information are they trying to get their hands on, um, who are they chatting with, and sort of what might be the ultimate purpose of their uh, of their mission. Uh, it could also be that they came under duress, for instance, that they're that they weren't willing collaborators, but their families. Back in China, came under duress from Chinese authorities, um, and that they uh, sort of uh, unwillingly started to uh, to collaborate. Um, some of the intelligence likely came from the United States about the um, uh, reliability of uh, of these two individuals. So the government would not want to disclose the sources and methods uh, by which um, they uh, were advised that they might might pose a uh, a problem. Um, that might also explain why no charges have been laid. Once you lay charges, then you need to have a trial and. You going to need to disclose those sources and methods, and the Americans would be extremely unhappy if those showed up in a, um, in a Canadian court of law. And it appears that there's both an ongoing criminal investigation and a security intelligence investigation. And so it could be that the Mounties are in good Mountie fashion, just taking forever to run this investigation because it's hugely complex and they've never really investigated anything of this sort before. But it could also be that um, they've struck a deal with Canadian authorities and have basically turned and uh, that in collaboration with Canadian authorities um, uh, that uh, given how overwhelming the evidence might be against them, uh, they would be confronted with the evidence and given a choice. You can start talking to us and collaborating with us and giving us um, information about your Chinese handlers and so forth um, and in return we'll 
will provide you some degree of protection. And, um, you know, for them, this could also be a dicey situation because um, if they indeed are Chinese uh, spies or uh, are in one way or another ended up disclosing information also to Canadian authorities that China would not want disclosed, uh, their lives might be in danger. And so that might be part of the reason why they haven't been seen or heard from, but we've had no charges uh, against them. And it appears that um, the Canadian authorities aren't in too big of a rush to track them down. Um, and they appear not to have left the country, which you would think they would um, if they were uh, in Canada under circumstances under which, for instance, a thousand Chinese scientists left the U.S. Uh, last year voluntarily because they wrongly uh, identified it um, and disclosed themselves to authorities uh, for the purpose of entering the country to begin with. So there's a lot of unanswered questions, um, but uh, there might be good reason why uh, the government is trying to keep this uh, reasonably quiet, because I think there's um, there's still a number of dots uh, that need to be connected here, and this is still very much a hot issue, I think, in terms of national security and security intelligence. Okay, so when we hear the Conservative Party put forward a motion to, um, you know, compel them to come and testify and, you know, the head of the public agency uh, come down to the House of Commons and, and give that kind of information and we see them withdrawing from the National Security Committee and, you know, the rest of the opposition MPs in agreement, um, alleging cover-up, saying that the government is using this as a cover-up. Maybe it's not a cover-up. Maybe there are legitimate national security reasons for why this is not being fully transparent and, and, you know, efficient, why it's taking so long and we're not getting all the info. There could be legitimate reasons there. Yeah, so look, I have a book coming out on intelligence accountability next month, um, and the government would have known full well that they can't actually move this matter to the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians because the law explicitly prohibits that committee from taking up any matter that is an active investigation. And so in that regard, um, my interpretation is that this move was always disingenuous to begin with and that the opposition basically just called that out. Um, There was no reason per se for the government not to disclose those documents to committee. Committees have received classified documents in the past, um, and um, ultimately uh, there there needs to be accountability somewhere on this file, um, and committee members can be prevented from talking about certain aspects of documentation that is disclosed to them. I have full faith that uh, in, in members of parliament that if they are handed um, uh, classified material, that they handle that material in, uh, in good faith and will keep uh, the content of that material to themselves um, in terms of the national interest and especially the national security interest. Um, and so um, I think this is more that um, I, I, I do suspect there are elements there are elements of national security and intelligence that the government um, is genuinely concerned about, that it wants to shield from uh, from public eyes. But I think there are also elements in here about, uh, for instance, that chances are the lab probably knew a lot sooner than they're letting on about the security, potential security issues with these two individuals, and that the research culture and the fact that they were research stars took precedent over concerns that CSIS raised, and I suspect the documents will show uh, some of those lags lags in timeline and some of the tensions between the research culture and the national security culture at the National Microbiology Lab, Um, and I think those could could raise raise some, uh, some problematic and 
contentious, uh, could become problematic and contentious for the government. Look, I think the government doesn't want to run if there is a fall election. It doesn't want to run on security issues, defense issues, intelligence issues, or China. And that's why it wants to try to do its best to keep those out of public view. Um, and I think that's unfortunate because we live in a democracy and elections are ultimately about a choice, about continuity or change. And it's unfortunate when the government of the day doesn't want to have a full transparent conversation uh, to allow Canadians to make an informed choice for themselves. So, Christian, where do we go from here? I mean, we know that the, the opposition parties are doing what they can, but they seem to have been stonewalled on this. Um, you know, it just seems in our, in our country, in, in, in our system, um, it shouldn't be possible for the government to just say, no, we're not doing this. Um, and there's no way to sort of compel them to come forward with this information. Where do we go from here? Well, I think this is part of the core is how we treat national security in this country. We don't have a national security culture, not within the federal government and not within the bulk of agencies. That, that there, There's nothing in terms of the, the, the predisposition, for instance, that you get in Australia, the United States, the United Kingdom um, on uh, on these types of issues. And so what this is emblematic of, that we actually need an, 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 an institutional cultural shift to make sure we take national security issues much more seriously, to understand that our adversaries uh, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, a host of other countries are pressing us hard on every vulnerability that they can find, political, economic, biosecurity, cyber, diplomacy, whatever it might be, and that we are under constant duress um, and that we can't treat these as sort of isolated incidents that might be, but rather to understand that these are the tip of the iceberg uh, of a completely, of an international and national security environment that has fundamentally changed, uh, that China, with its um, um, United Front activities in Canada is extremely active at undermining Canadian democracy, at interfering with our democratic processes and infiltrating our, our public and our private institutions. And so I think that is the takeaway lesson here, and I think that's a conversation that I'm not sure the government of today is entirely prepared to have. Well, that's the thing, Christian, when we take a look at um, the Liberal government's record on China, and we've talked a lot about all the things you're talking about, cyber, education, politicians, all these sorts of ways that they're exerting influence, it seems the federal government is either naive or not wanting to deal with this, you know, for what it is. Is there anybody in Ottawa that's working to say, hey, guys, pay attention here. Like you say, we're under constant duress. Is anybody recognizing that and putting in anything to try and protect Canadians? Yeah, so I think listeners who want to learn a bit more might want to pull up the redacted annual report of uh, of CSIS, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, um, as well as CSE, so uh, our Signals Intelligence Agency, the Communication Security Establishment, and the last couple of years of the annual reports of the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, all of which are available online. And I think what you'll see in those, in particular this year for the first time, uh, the CSIS report and the CSIS director subsequently in a, uh, in in a public discussion uh, for the first time in over 20 years explicitly named China um, as an adversary that's actively working to undermine us. And so that in itself is a significant shift because since uh, the Khetian government shut down the Sidewinder project, it hasn't really been possible for CSIS to talk publicly about China as a, as a threat and as an adversary. So I do think there is a shift underway in Ottawa. I think the intelligence and security entities are pushing back, but as I say, they're pushing back against the culture whereby 
by and large, security intelligence is not a priority, um, and that's not baked into the way we do things uh, in Ottawa, in other departments, and in other ministries, uh, let alone sort of for Canadian society to actually take stock of the fact that uh, that this is happening. And so I think it'll um, it'll take continued awareness um, uh, by the public. But I think in a democracy, it's also up to the public ultimately to make this an issue. And I think the gov- just the fact that you and I are having this conversation shows that it is becoming an issue and that I think the government is working hard trying not to make it an issue for the election. And I think the opposition is making a point out of trying to make it an election issue. So we will see uh, whether, uh, to what extent, uh, Canadians believe that um, uh, this should be part of the democratic mandate of uh, whichever party forms the next government. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope it's on it's on the radar of Canadians for sure. Christian, thanks so much for your insight this morning. Always appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, that's Christian Luprecht, who is um, a professor at the Royal Military College and at Queen's University. Interesting discussion. I'm looking forward to this. We've talked a lot on the show about um, education and what we didn't know about Canada's residential schools. And, you know, I'd I'd mentioned on the show, we learned about uh, Japanese-Canadian internment camps. That was a discussion that they had in school during the Second World War. I did learn about that. Um, And one of our listeners reached out and said, yeah, but have you heard about Ukrainian internment camps? And to be honest, no, I hadn't. Now, Sarah, our producer, says she did. She learned about that. Or maybe it was from her family. I don't know if she learned about it in school. Um, But I, I was really surprised in, in talking to this listener about the situation and what went on in our country. This is during the First World War. So I said, you know what, you need to come on the show. Come on the show and uh, let's have a chat about uh, all the research and the work that you've done about this and, and give us some insight about Ukrainian internment camps during World War One. So we have Adam Kloster joining us now. Adam, how are you? I'm good. Good morning, Shay. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Thanks so much for reaching out. It's a really interesting discussion. And why did you decide that this was something that you really wanted to look into? What what brought it to your attention? Uh, well, like you, I, I didn't remember hearing about it in school or learning about any part of it, really. Um, a little bit of backstory. My wife uh, was born in the Ukraine. She came over about 10 years ago. Um, and we were talking about the Japanese camps and, and how horrible it was that their rights had been taken away and, and how horrible it was it had taken so long for an apology to come out. Yeah. And she asked if I knew about the Ukrainian camps, and I, I had no idea. And I started looking into it, and it's it's incredible that we don't know more about this. It's, it's a big part of our history. Yeah, I agree with you. It is really surprising that uh, I think a lot of people have no knowledge of this whatsoever. But, you know, it has been kicked around in national circles before. I mean, there there was actually something called the Persons of Ukrainian Origin Recognition Act, right? The Internment of Persons of Ukrainian Origin Internment Act. So the in government's talked about it. Yeah, in 2005, I think that was put forward by Inky Mark, the Conservative MP. Sure. Um, yeah, it's just amazing because... Um, Nobody was recognizing that this happened. Um, People looking into this have gone to government officials and have been flat out told that that never happened. So they actually had to go to Parliament and get an act to recognize that this happened. So what has that act done for us? Is it just sort of a recognition or is there anything that meaningful change that has come from it? Well, in 2008, they... Uh, there's a fund that has been set up that's supposed to um, it's supposed to be there for public education about what's been going on. It has put forward funds for plaques, 
um, for a few documentaries about it. Um, but there's been no apology about what's happened. Um, yeah, uh, a little. So let's get into what actually happened. Yeah, okay. Uh, in 1914, the War Measures Act was passed. This is because Britain uh, joined in the, on the First World War, and Canada, being part of the Commonwealth, was automatically part of that. Okay. Um, between 1902 and 1914, something like 170,000 Ukrainian immigrants immigrated to Canada. After 1914 and the passing of this act, over 80,000 of them had to register as enemy aliens. This means that their um, movement was tracked. They had to report to the RCMP. Um, they couldn't. They were censored too. Um, and this, I mean, these camps were right across the country, much like the residential schools, including right absolutely. here in Alberta, right? Yep, there's 24 of these camps across Canada. Uh, two of them, two of the most harsh ones, were actually in Jasper and Banff. Okay, uh, when you say harsh, what, what, tell us why. What, what was harsh about them? Obviously, aside from being detained, but... It, it was literally hard labor. Like, they were used to split rocks, clear paths, build roads, all, all of the hard labor to build the groundwork for our park system. Uh, have you ever gone golfing in Banff? At the I have, course there? yeah. Part of that golf course was actually built using these men's labor. Really? Okay. Now, yeah. interestingly, uh, these camps persisted for a while because um, yesterday, I think, would have been the 101st anniversary of the last of these camps being closed, right? Absolutely. That's a, that's two years after the fighting stopped. Right, yeah, exactly. And they were still getting free labor from these men. Um, all across Canada, like in Quebec, there was, uh, they were used to clear the boreal forest for developing farmland. Mm-hmm. And, and Shea, it wasn't just men that were being locked up. A lot of these immigrant families came over and the men were interred. And what are these families supposed to do? They, they don't have anything, so they actually joined the men in these camps. There was two camps, one in, I think, Vernon and Spirit Lake, Quebec, that had families in them. Wow. Haunting pictures of, of families standing on opposite sides of the fence, and you, you think it comes from something like like Nazi Germany sure. or something. But then you look in the background and you start noticing some hills, and it's it's Vernon. I've, I've been there. Unbelievable. Now, a name that was heavily involved in um, what happened in Parliament in recognizing this and... Um, mm-hmm creating the act uh, will be familiar to our listeners. Uh, one Jason Kenney. Quote, yes. There's a quote I would like to read. It's from one of his speeches uh, regarding this topic. Um, so this was not an easy or obvious thing to do. Previous governments, for whatever reason, said, as did former Prime Minister Trudeau, that we cannot take responsibility for the sins of our fathers, and indeed we cannot. Canadians today are not directly and personally culpable for mistakes made in the past. But he seems to have had some recognition that there needs to be a formal recognition of this. And as you said, a fund to increase awareness um, was also brought in at that same time. So um, that's when it got elevated to the national stage, right? Yeah, but that quote is from Jason Kenney, and I just wanted to to read that out, because that, that appears to be the government mindset. He was He was the face of the negotiations for the government side when they were dealing with, um, I think it's three different community groups of Ukrainian descendants. Um, and in 2008, they 
they created a fund, a recognition fund. Um, and the interest, like I was saying before, goes to recognition. So there's mm-hmm. a few documentaries out there, a few plaques and everything. But the fund is, it's $10 million. Yeah, yeah. And I it, don't know, but that number seemed, like to put it in perspective, these, these men's labors, okay, two of the camps, Jasper and Banff, how many millions of dollars a year in tourism dollars does the Canadian government make? Yeah. And and this is all, like all these tourist spots and everything that drive through there, they have no idea that, that the groundwork was laid by forced labor. Like we almost sell this story, this this fairy tale of, of Canadian pioneerism, like conquering the, the nature, the, the wilderness. Well, and you know who gets a lot of credit for that is... Um Chinese uh, workers, right? We know that. Mm-hmm. They, they, they did, did a lot of work on the railroad, but we don't hear about the Ukrainian involvement. Yeah. There was, uh, I found numbers, it's between 100 and 109 of these men died. Either there was some escape attempts, there was work accidents, there was suicides. A number of these men went insane due to the conditions. I mean, you've, you've been in Jasper and Banff. I'm just using these as examples yeah, yeah. because I've, I've used them or I've been to these places. In the summer, the mosquitoes and the muskeg and everything. Imagine imagine hard labor. Oh, sure, yeah, it would be awful. But then in the winter, like these shacks, there's stories of them not being insulated. So, like, yeah, I can how they would go insane, to be honest. Well, yeah, no kidding. I mean, you're talking about the harshest of conditions, doing hard labor um, against your will. And, you know, the, the other thing is when we talk about awareness and things like that, education is probably uh, another element that we can we can certainly take a look at. You know, and, and, and as you say, you don't remember learning about in school. I certainly don't. Um, and we're in the middle of a curriculum change right now in Alberta, so we can include this too. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I found really interesting about the Recognition Act, the government put in Section 3 that it um, it was going to provide for public education. I find that interesting because education is not under federal. That is a provincial. Mm, yeah, yeah. So Jason Kenney, who was the face of these promises to these communities, is now in a position. How often does the curriculum get updated in a province? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. You can incorporate he, he that. Made promises, and and some people might say 2008 was a long time ago. Like thoughts have changed, maybe. But this is something that Mr. Kenny is aware of. Last year, to uh, commemorate the 100 year of the last man being released and the camp shutting down, um, there was a message put out from Mr. Kenny to the Ukrainian community, talking about the uh, it being the 100 year and commemorating it. This is not something he's unaware of. No, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Interesting stuff, Adam. He needs to follow through on some of his promises. Like, this is, Canada has a dark history, and I think it's starting to come to light. But we're not the only country with a dark history. I mean, it doesn't get much darker than wartime Germany. But they take a completely different um, track with this. It gets against the law to be a Holocaust denier there. They have to take it in school yearly. We we were hiding it. In 1954, all of the records regarding the internment camps in Canada, and sorry, they weren't called internment camps at the time. They were called concentration camps. The name of them only retroactively changed after World War II. 
for obvious reasons. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the records were destroyed. Um, there's no way to see who was actually in these camps. And the thing is, there was a lot of shame from the survivors. They, they didn't speak up after it happened because they were taken for no reason. And they thought if they spoke up, they'd be taken again. Right, so they exactly. didn't even pass this information down to family. They didn't. They didn't talk about it. If if this if this doesn't get talked about, it it's going to die from memory. There aren't any internees left. The last survivor died in two thousand eight, and this was a girl born in one of those family camps. Wow! The descendants of the descendants are right. dying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and if there's no record in Parliament, there's did it even happen? Well, this is the thing. I mean, it's something that, uh, you know, some education around it would be fascinating. And and, and I appreciate you coming and giving some of, some of that this morning, Adam. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Trey. Yeah, you bet, Adam. Uh, that is Adam Kloster, who is a listener to this show. And uh, we got into a discussion. He reached out on email and uh, just said, did you know? Did you know? And I said, no, I didn't. Interesting. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.